clubhouse. Alibis fall apart, Adam. I see it all the time. They almost never hold up. If you want to give yourself a fighting chance, it has to be very close to true. Okay, but... Being here, doing this... Months from now, if you're ever asked where you were, what you were doing on October 9th, you'll have the muscle memory of what you did. You won't have to construct the lie because you lived it. But yesterday was yesterday. If the vet at the gate is ever on the stand, do you think he remembers the date? Or the embarrassing wise-ass and his embarrassed son? Today is yesterday. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Welcome to Tales from Yaya's, the Your Honor podcast. Tonight, we're talking about part two of Your Honor. It was written by Peter Moffat and directed by Edward Berger, who I think actually they're going to be the writing and directing team for all 10 of these episodes. We'll probably say that every episode, and I'll probably repeat the fact that they are the writer and director (laughs) of every episode, but there you go. And stick around to the end of this episode, because after Caroline and I are done talking about this episode, we have a fantastic interview with Hunter Duhan, who plays Adam DeCiato. I feel like I have a lot more insight into Adam and his connections to the other players in the show, but also like the behind the scenes kind of vibe and all of that feels like, yay. Like I understand the show so much more and the character so much more. One thing that I really liked about the interview was how he talked about Brian Cranston and the mirroring of their relationship as a father-son on screen and Brian just being so open and warm with him, you know, like the joking and stuff and just and and being obviously a mentor. I mean, I imagine Brian Cranston's a mentor basically everywhere he goes for a lot of especially younger actors. But I I thought it was really interesting just to just to see that mirroring relationship. Less dead bodies in real life than (laughs) than on the show, but it was still nice to see him uh, talk so glowingly about Brian, about the whole cast. I mean, they seemed like uh, it was a really close group of people that COVID actually, unfortunately, interrupted their filming, which was interesting to learn also that they hadn't actually wrapped, that they they actually only wrapped over Thanksgiving weekend. So that's so crazy. And then they came out just right like a week later. That's so crazy. Yeah. I mean, I give this show a lot of credit. I think other shows would have ended up pushing because they didn't have everything, you know, all their post-production done on everything. So I give Showtime a lot of credit that they're sticking to their schedule and, and they're making it work. Right now, if they just film finished filming over Thanksgiving, you know their post-production teams, the editors, are still going over those back-end episodes. It's a weird time to be in the television and movie industry and and I give everyone that's getting the job done and, and adhering to all the safety protocols. It's it's a lot. It's a lot. It's very stressful. It's a whole lot of work on everyone's part to bring us great television. And I think through these first two episodes, I'm, I mean, I'm so happy with what we're getting to see here. I think it's amazing, too, that this is one of the few shows where the actors and, and the production crew can talk about what it was like before COVID and after because they actually still had more to film. So they had like both sides within one show. And I, th- I think it'll be neat to watch those last episodes that were affected by the pandemic and see 
how they shoot it differently, how how scenes are just set up completely differently. I'm, I'm, I'm eager to see how it ends up playing out on the screen. Yeah, I'm curious also to see if the vibe changes, because, again, if you, li- mm. you listen to this interview with Hunter, he talks about how it was they were there during like Mardi Gras times and, and, and just the New Orleans lifestyle and, and the nightlife and just having fun and being able to go out and socialize with everyone. I think he talks about Brian Cranston being on the float, you know, yeah. the king of a float at one point. And then fast forward eight months, they return and he's like, you know, we're done. Once we're done recording, everyone has to return to their own hotels and there's no chit chat between takes. And it, it just seemed like a night and day thing, almost Orwellian in the difference of of how the vibe changed just because it had to, because you can't be cavalier and casual and social anymore, or at least not right now. Not yet. Let's start talking about part two with Adam, because I think he has a really interesting arc in here. We're not going to spend a lot of time chit-chatting now because we talk a lot about Adam and his character in episodes one and two uh, with Hunter. But I think there's something interesting to note about how he seemed to change from episode one to episode two. Did you notice a change in his persona or in his personality? I did. I definitely felt like he went from being someone who was scared and panicked to the amount of times that the camera zooms in on his face and he does like some sort of quizzical look with his forehead and his eyebrows. And he'll do sort of like one of these like, what exactly are you talking about? Like, not like he's confused, but he's sort of just like the cogs are starting to put together like exactly what is going to be asked of him and what he's going to have to do. And if he's going to be able to do it is certainly in question. And he doesn't seem fully on board. He's incredulous Mm-mm. about the whole, we have to treat today like it was yesterday to build an alibi. He he kind of questions his father almost at every turn. And, and by the end of the episode seems almost angry. You know, when he takes that phone call from Detective Costello telling him that Kofi's been arrested and he he kind of spits it at Michael's face when when Michael walks in, he says Kofi's been arrested, you know, for the murder of Rocco Baxter and and he's he's relating the crime as Nancy Costello told it to him, but obviously he knows that Kofi hasn't done this thing. He seems almost like full on angry. A far cry from the shocked panic uh, asthmatic boy from the first episode at the crime scene. He he seems to have fully kind of come around and his guilt is kind of driving the ship now, it seems. It's fascinating because this is a scenario in which, you know, we know that dad, Michael, is trying to do everything he can to protect and save Adam. But at the same time, it's that push and pull of a kid where you're trying to do everything that you know is right for them. And yet... They didn't sign on for this. And so there's that, like, he didn't ask, you know, Adam's opinion, like, what do you think we should do or anything like that? So there's that, you know, 17-year-old brain of, like, I'm almost a man, like, and yet I'm being, like, pushed and pulled like a pawn, and I don't like that. And you can almost, like, see it on his face at all times. And more and more so as the episode's going on, when the camera pulls up and we see him in the balcony watching Kofi's arraignment, and then later on, at the very end of the episode, he's standing where the defendant would stand, and he's got his hands in front of him, and he looks like, although he was missing, was like an orange jumpsuit, and he looked like someone, a defendant, waiting to be arraigned in front of a judge himself. This kid is already at the breaking point, and we're only in episode two. There's eight more episodes to go. I don't know how much his guilt can let him 
continue to stay silent. You know, we had the introduction of the girlfriend teacher in this episode, which was a huge twist, which is going to add more stress. We have the introduction of Nancy Costello, and she's a bulldog. And you know that that's not going to go great when they eventually get in front of each other. Because even Michael, who's cold and calculating with all of this planning kind of folds in front of Nancy and her and her intense eyes. Oh my gosh. I'm worried about Adam being able to keep it together for the long haul, but you're right. And I liked the thing I liked the most was I'm a dad. You're a mom. We both, I think agree that there's nothing we wouldn't do for our children, you know, pick up the shovel and let's go, you know, bury some bodies if we need to. But I never stopped to think, would my son want me to do that? I don't think we'd stop to ask them. No. That's the thing. We you don't have a choice. Like, yeah. Well, and we'd be like, you need to go along with this. Like, it wouldn't... I, all the times when I've ever thought, would I bury the body for my kid? I never thought, would my kid want me to bury the body? I never asked myself that question. No. No. And even talking about it now, if tomorrow Tom was like, Dad, I, I, I still wouldn't, you know, in the moment, I know I wouldn't ask it. When Michael says to him uh, towards the end of the, the beginning of the episode, he says, if you won't listen to me, how can I keep you safe? That was the line that resonated the most with me. I completely understand that. I feel like I say that or a version of that to my kid all the time. Just just listen to me. I know better. You know, you just want to shake them by the shoulders because when they're obstinate and even things less important than murder. Oh, yeah. I think it's that helplessness you feel from the first time that they're mobile, you know, and they and they go to dart in the street or they go to touch the stove or they go to do anything. That helplessness of like, you're actually a separate entity from me and I can't actually control anything that you do day to day, moment to moment. So, again, you have that that assumed if you got into trouble, you would want me to fix it. But this is just pulling back that whole idea and saying, you know what? Did anyone bother to ask whether he wanted it to be fixed? Before we shift off to Adam, we have to talk about hottie teacher girlfriend because we see her at the very beginning of episode one and then not again. Not a phone call, not an interaction, not that we notice anyway. And then this twist of this episode where first again we see the we see her in the hallway talking to another student. Oh, so maybe she's just a student. She looks maybe like she could be in that age range, but no, no, she's actually his English teacher. Did this twist get you? Were you surprised by this? It made me question how old Adam was. Like, I was like, okay, hold on. I know in episode one, we were like, he seems like he could be in high school or he seems like he could be in college. And so I was kind of willing him to be older than I kind of knew he was. Um, like, I really wanted him to be like in junior college or or in something where, where maybe she could just be like 22 or 23 and he could be like 19 and it wouldn't feel that bad. But unfortunately, it became really obvious that no, he's 17 and she is a high school teacher. Talk about a kid who doesn't need any extra complications or stress in his life. I, I know there's, if especially if any young guys are listening to this right now, almost all of them are thinking, yeah, that's super hot. And, you know, I would love if my super sexy uh, English teacher was also my girlfriend. But the reality is... It, that's not a good situation. It, it is complicated. It is it is messy. It is an it's abuse illegal. of power. It is illegal. Well, it's illegal, <laughs> but it's, it's it's an abuse of power, and that's what it's going to come down to. It's the reason it's illegal is one because it's gross, no matter what the age range is. It's an abuse of power. Adam's not going to be able to withstand whatever this woman brings his way because of the mismatch in their levels. It's not like I can't tell the secret to my girl girlfriend who's my age. 
it's I can't tell the secret to my girlfriend, who's also my teacher, who is also significantly older than me. No matter how young a teacher she is, she's still significantly older than him. And I can't tell her for a variety of reasons, but, uh, you know. I think he's going to tell her. He's going to have to. There's no part of me that says that that he isn't going to blab. Right, because. she's going to notice something's going on with him. And this is the point I was clumsily making was, if it's a girl your age that you're dating, maybe you can put them off with, honey, what's wrong? You're, You're acting strange. Or maybe the girlfriend your age doesn't even notice you're acting strange because kids aren't always the most observant, even with their boyfriends and girlfriends. But a woman is going to notice him acting differently, is going to notice a change in his stress level, and she is going to be like, what is wrong with you? What is happening? Or... You know, are you acting differently because of this relationship? You know, that that secret specter of, well, maybe we should break up if you're going to be a stranger. And then he's going to have to blurt it out or something, you know, but like, no, no, it's not you. It's because I killed someone, you know, like whatever it is. <laughs> well, it's certainly, you know, on the anniversary of his mom's death, he bought some time with that excuse. You know, it's like, oh, I'm just in a funk because of that. But, you know, as the days go by here and we get further away from mom's anniversary, there's going to be no reasons to be given other than, you know, you're going to have to be really tricky with this. You know, you have to get real busy at home. The one thing I wanted to bring up and see if you noticed this also was Adam, as we have seen him the entire show so far, we've only seen panic Adam, shock Adam, PTSD Adam, Adam, Adam having an asthma attack, Adam crawling on the floor to an inhaler, not wonderful great looks on on adam at this point right he's he's not been in the best light here but when he's in that classroom and he's talking about vivian meyer and how much he loves her and obviously it's code and you could see the stars in his eyes and the and the cupids floating around his head as he's like i really love vivian meyer it was a side of him we hadn't seen and it was kind of refreshing to see him have this other mode to see him have some kind of normalcy to have some feelings that weren't you know revolving around killing Rocco Baxter am I imagining that or is it just gross because it's his teacher and I should you know (laughs) I should banish any happy thoughts for him having a moment of normal there no I mean and I don't know if it's we can call it normal because you know it is you know hot for teacher kind of moment there as soon as I said it I regretted it normal right but I would say that you know I think that it was it's interesting and it certainly shows that he has different facets to his personality that's worth exploring. I'm curious if there's more to him, if we're going to find out that, you know, while right now he's acting very quizzical and and critical of his dad and the choices that are being made, if there's going to be some part of his personality as more is revealed, that might just be okay with going along with it. A few minutes ago, you mentioned something, and I want to circle back to, and I want to drill your brain a little bit on it. You mentioned that Adam, we're getting (laughs) getting the drill out. So you mentioned Adam was 17, almost a man, but not quite a man. We know Rocco was just shy of his 18th birthday. He was 17. I think we heard that Kofi is also 17. Is the show telling us something? What's your theory on the 17? That seems like a big coincidence for all three of those young men to all be the same age. So I have a couple of thoughts on that. I think that one, if you take any age and you take three characters and make them all the same age and they have different walks of life, I think that that's one story structure that can that can kind of just do this compare and contrast of, you know, different classes, different races, what they're going through right now, basically. So you, it doesn't necessarily have to be um, special to 17. You could have picked, you know, 35 or 55 or whatever. However, 
17 being that like really big moment of people kind of choosing where their lives are going to go. Like this is the moment that determines, are you college bound? Do you end up, you know, with a pregnant girlfriend? Do you end up in the justice system? This is a big moment because you're sort of your last gasp of childhood and the adulthood is just looming in a way that's like your decisions are no longer just accidental mistakes where people can say, oh, you're still learning, that kind of thing. You're right about your toes on the line to like choices you make now affect the rest of your life. I like that. I like that a lot because there is something about the threshold of manhood of, you know, no longer a child, now a man. And it's interesting when you look at all three men or all three boys, you know, on the verge of manhood, and they are all very different. They are all from very different walks of life. And I think there is something in this show which isn't glaring yet. But with the introduction of Kofi and the Desire Gang, I think we're going to see more of my my gut feeling is that we're going to see more of the divisions in how all of these lives are playing out. Rocco, who seemed like a happy kid with a happy family life, even though his father happens to be a crime boss. Right. I kind of want to like point this out because I think it's kind of fascinating. So given if you just saw in writing who these different individual characters were, I don't know that you would exactly add up to what it is on the screen. Meaning Rocco is having breakfast with his entire family. They're laughing. They're joking. He obviously has like some sibling silliness going on and all this kind of stuff, right? He is the same age as... Adam, who lives basically an independent world there. He's got his like casita situation in the back of the house. He's sleeping with a with an adult woman. He's in charge of the dog, in charge of getting himself out in the morning. Everything. There's no like coddling going on there, you know, in the same way. And then you have Kofi, who's like, you know, off the really the first times we really see him. He's, you know, just kind of hanging out on the streets with some with some other guys. So it was interesting because I think you would think that Rocco would be sleeping with some girl. He wasn't just hanging out. I mean, he's in a gang. He's 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 a foot soldier in a gang who are not his friends. Remember, he rolls he rolls up to the guy who gives him the assignment and he tries to fist bump him. And the guy's just like, you got a job to do. You might expect that slick, rich Rocco would be crawling out of bed with some blonde, you know, getting into his hot rod to go head off to school. But it isn't like that. He's got like a very serial breakfast advertisement morning going on there, you know, with teasing with a sibling and actually pretty not living this like slick life. I mean, I would say that really Adam has a much more adult life. Just as an aside, when Adam is stalking Rocco a little bit uh, you know he's in his room and he's googling about the news reports on the accident but then he finds his way to uh, his sister's Facebook page Fia and and we see she's got a post you know I can't believe you're not going to steal my shirts anymore it made me feel bad for Rocco and and his family and the grief that they must be going through I mean there's a great there's a great story Hunter actually says in the interview in a conversation he has with Michael Stuhlberg who plays Jimmy Baxter and I don't want to ruin it here but it really makes you think about who are the good guys who are the bad guys because it's all about perspective it's all about point of view so definitely definitely listen to the interview all the way through because that comes up later in the interview and it's great it's a great story that i've been thinking about since we recorded that interview a couple hours ago (laughs) they did they went out of their way to show us that this wasn't some 90210 brat 
Rocco, you know, his whole life. There's a family there. There's a family. Uh, there is family in it, including a, a, someone named Carlo that we don't know anything about other than he has maybe done something to piss off the Desire gang. Not much on that this episode, but definitely something to keep an eye out maybe for upcoming episodes. Let's go from Rocco. Let's shift to his dad, Jimmy, because Jimmy Baxter is having a big sad. He is Ooh. not handling the death of his son very well. What was your feeling on him? Were you feeling sympathy? Were you feeling some empathy for him listening to the wheezy 911 tape and then saying goodbye to his son in the morgue at the top of this episode? To be honest with you, I, I think I was just taking him in because he is such an intimidating character that I wasn't really ready to feel empathy yet, even though I absolutely should. He is such an icy, frigid guy that watching him listen to the tape didn't make me feel like, oh my God, that would be so sad. It was more like, it, it made me nervous, I guess, you know? And then going to the Morgan, he was whispering in in his ear, in Rocco's ear. I just was like, you know, I want to think he's saying like, I love you, honey, but you know, he's not, you know, he's like, I'm going to, yeah, you know, like, like, I'm gonna vengeance. Get, and, yeah. I'm going to get these yeah. motherfuckers and cut their balls off. You know, it's yeah. Yeah. And that so, that's not for my heart. That's my heart doesn't leap to this sensitive empathy when I see these actions. It's more like, okay, so this is how he's grieving. Now, as we move forward in this and the way that he grieves, I mean, obviously he becomes even a bigger monster in my eyes. And and more unhinged. I mean, I think this is a guy prone to violence who is now you have you have thrown gasoline in the form of grief at losing a child too young on that fire you know you know what i mean so you've already taken a bad situation and made it worse by this happening to Rocco. You have to imagine that Jimmy is one who's prone to violence to begin with and now with this added uh factor of his son not just dying it wasn't like he had like a, an allergic reaction and passed away quietly or something like that it was killed he was killed and it, we don't know who did it i think for any parent there's a certain amount of of anger and grief attached to that when you have when you lay that at the feet of someone who's already violent you you are essentially making a powder cake that's going to explode and unfortunately takes it out on that that goddamn bird who it cleans itself every 10 minutes. I feel for that whole situation, though, because that is the part where it let me know that he would do something so horrible and so just disgusting to something so helpless, something that was already trapped, already tied up, you know, couldn't defend himself anyway. But then that that's just a whole nother type of person that I really can't relate to that that really makes me feel like okay so so if anyone's sitting around thinking maybe there's some way to reason with this guy this scene says nope no reasoning with him right which almost makes you think back to episode one and Michael's decision to not continue at the police station once he realizes that it's uh, a Baxter kid that he killed you kind of nod your head and go yeah i get it now you know i heard your words that he was a violent crime boss last week but now i'm seeing it in action and then the way he's he's bashing that birdcage to pieces i completely get it why you didn't want to put your son through that because it really was a death sentence right and what would you do to protect your son right that's the tagline of this show seeing this guy in action i'm gonna do a lot to protect my son from this this lunatic because there's no justice that's going to be served. It's only a death sentence for, for Adam if Jimmy gets a hold of him. For completion's sake, we hear about the inhaler and Jimmy's goon is testing it for DNA. And he tells Jimmy it's going to take 36 hours to come back. 
the thing I hadn't realized, right? Because you and I were, were both kind of like gasping at the fact that he left so much evidence at the crime scene. He left his inhaler. His fingerprints have got to be everywhere. It wasn't until the goon mentioned the fact that they are going to run the DNA against the police records to see if there's a match that I actually relaxed a little bit because it's unlikely that Adam is in the system. He probably doesn't have fingerprints on record anywhere or DNA swabs on record anywhere. I'm assuming he's not been through the prison system at all or done a notary test or, you know, some kind of medical or law school licensing board where his, you know, fingerprints or DNA would be on record. I actually relaxed a little bit that as much as the inhaler seems damning, it didn't maybe seem like it's going to be that bad to connect the inhaler to Adam, did that make you relax a little bit? Or are you still not happy with the fact that the inhaler is in the, the Baxter family's hands? Well, I'm not happy that anything of Adam's is in the Baxter family's hands. I actually was pulling from a completely different other well of information in my brain, which was actually coming from Good Girls. There was a whole situation going on there where rape kits were coming into play. And if they unplugged this refrigeration that basically it was going to, it was going to degrade in a matter of, of a short period of time. So I went through the, the process of actually looking it up. And according to like the government websites that we have, it says in summertime, the time period for erasing the bulk of DNA is four hours. That has been sitting out there. I know the asphalt is blazing hot in New Orleans. The chances that you could get much DNA off of that plastic inhaler just sitting out in the blazing sun feels like absolutely minimal. So I was kind of feeling good in that way. I was just like, There's, the DNA's got to be like way messed up by this time. Right. I think I was actually more concerned about fingerprint things because of all the blood that was on Adam's hand. You put the blood in there, it's like having ink on your fingers. And so everything you touch is going to leave an imprint in the blood. So I think I had all along been more so concerned about... Uh, You're thinking about fingerprints as yeah, the main concern? Yeah, I, I'm thinking about more fingerprints. And I think think Michael even brought this up last episode when he starts going off about all of the blood in the car and all the things that Adam touched. I think maybe that's why it nestled in my brain, that that made more sense. There's probably Adam's fingerprints that can tie him to the crime scene, to the car, to, to damning evidence. If fingerprints in Rocco's blood that would put him together. But again... Adam is probably not in any system, right? It's not just your finger. Everyone, no, Everyone's fingerprints aren't somewhere, right? Only if you've been processed through the criminal system or in there's certain professions where you have to put your fingerprints on file and, and some other specific reasons why you have to have your fingerprints on the government's file. Adam's probably not any of those. So that made me feel a little bit better. But I think it's his fingerprints that are going to be much more damning to him for how sloppy a crime scene he left and in the car and all of the all of the myriad of other mistakes he made you know in fleeing from uh, the crime scene <laughs> poor adam yeah not a criminal mastermind Trying. not Trying a criminal hard. mastermind. i mean i'd like to go to michael now because i think from michael we also get good conversation about all of the other kind of side characters that were that we're seeing in this episode and, and introduced to. It was super smart of Michael to recreate yet today as yesterday, to, to establish an alibi. I picked up on it right away. I, I thought it was really intelligent, but he eventually explains it, which I think for some viewers, it will be helpful because it's not terribly clear what he's doing until he really kind of spells it out. And, and Adam is certainly confused. But I have in my notes here, this is the single smartest thing that Michael has done since He's committed to covering up this crime. What did you think of the whole cold opening with the diner, with going to the cemetery, with the vet and the money uh, and all of the layering? Is that something you would have thought of in, in covering up a crime? 
I don't think I would have thought of it, but I very much subscribe to muscle memory. I do think that it's much easier to to try to draw back on some sort of information if you have repetitively done it. So to go and actually walk it through, not just sit down with a piece of paper and say, let's say we went here and here and here and here, but really walk it through beyond the the obvious that you have eyewitnesses then and you have people who could possibly corroborate what was happening you also have your own memories saying, yes, I was here. And then, yes, I physically remember being here. I think it was brilliant. I didn't know at first there was like a question mark. I was watching with a couple other people and they were like, I don't understand. Is the is is, is this like a time jump kind of thing? Or was this like, time, like are, are we out of sequence? And so until he said, this is yesterday, we're working through yesterday, basically. I, I thought that was kind of clever because it, it was confusing, I think, to some audience members. Right. And so let's close the loop on it if you're confused. So the, the way it works is he's now with the waitress. He's chatting her up. He's making a real scene of it. Fuck, they're, eat, they're drinking espresso in a diner. That's going to be memorable to that waitress. Like, yeah, those two white dudes drank espresso and talked to me about this criminal case in shotgun houses. Like all of that. It wasn't just coffee. I, I've eaten in a lot of diners in my life. I have never asked for espresso at a diner uh, sitting at a countertop. It's coffee. Coffee black with a little cream. Everything he's doing here is to make him memorable and make this day memorable for the waitress. Why? Because just like he says to Adam, months from now, when this goes to trial, and if Adam and or Michael Desiato are being involved in it somehow, the waitress is going to say, yeah, I remember the judge being there that day. He told me he was a judge. He told me about the shotgun house and, and how it didn't work up. And someone's going to look at the record and they're going to see actually on the actual day. Michael Desiato did go to that house. He did have a case that day. He did break down a cop. It will match up with what the waitress says. She'll place them on the diner that day. So instead of the run that introduced episode one, the new truth is going to be that him and his son were at the diner the morning before he goes to the lower ninth house and, and jogs up the stairs and, and looks at the shotgun house. He's now erased that morning run that we saw at the beginning of last week's episode. For Adam, he's not rolling out of bed off of his girlfriend in clipping flowers. No. Uh, he had breakfast at the diner with his father where they filled up the card and together went to the cemetery to place the memorial to his mother and say some kind words. So he's now erased everything that he did at the beginning of the episode. He, they have now built new truth for what happened before the, the morning of Rocco's getting killed. So it's all about something happening in the future because you're not going to, like he says to the vet, the vet's not going to remember October 9th or October 10th. Uh, he's going to remember an asshole and his son who was embarrassed by an asshole, not, not giving me money before they went to go talk to the headstone. Uh, so really, really smart reinventing the new truth, going through the motions. Like you said, the muscle memory, I also agree with you, is important because you want a lie that's close to the truth or has tinges of the truth. And you also want to actually do the thing, because if you have to talk about it, you'll talk about it believably because you actually did do the thing. Absolutely. I mean, there's things that I think that if they started to poke holes real quick and which they did a great job of showing us Judge Mike there uh, poking holes in the funeral story and just watching him take that down so methodically. It's like, oh, God, you know, you didn't really have to know many details to be able to tell that story believably, but because you didn't bother to layer in anything, <laughs> you know, you basically fell apart in an instant. I think it comes up where people say things. And they don't think anyone's going to follow up with you uh, and ask for details. So, you know, if you if Janet invites you to a party at her house and you say, no, I got a I got a work call. 
you don't expect Janet to ask you 15 follow-up questions about the details of that work call that you're going to then have to come up on the spot. You know, who was the call with? What did you guys talk about? How long did it go for? You're not expecting that, right? You say things, you make an excuse, you think the person's just going to accept it and move on. No, Michael Desiato, he smells that this guy is just making up a story, so he wants some details. So I, I like that detail about him. I like the fact that we saw all of that in the morning because it's such a great counterbalance to when he doesn't have time to think through things and he falls apart really quickly so he's he's a very methodical man when he has time to prepare when when we get introduced to nancy costello detective nancy costello and she is not having any of this let the car robber go who did you a favor judge Uh, every time they interact i mean he comes off shifty as fuck and it's only i think by the good graces that she likes him and has an established relationship with him that she's not looking at him like sideways. Like, what's wrong with you? You sound like you're lying. I think you also have that backdrop of, again, the anniversary of the wife's death. I think that that layer is so important to creating believable excuses for all behavior. You can act distant. You can act, you can fumble with your words. You can pause longer. You can do all these things and blame it away to like, my mind got lost thinking about Robin and the last time we were in the car or, you know, whatever little thing you can, you can really blame so many things on that. If this storyline didn't have Robin's death and the anniversary surrounding it, there would be a lot more reasons to feel angry at these characters or, or even angry at the writing. But it's like you, you have that layer. It's okay to act a little out of it, a little confused, a little, like I say, distant, because maybe you can't think quickly on your feet. And that's okay, because this is a grieving day. Talk to me, because I actually found this a believable story he spins. Initially, and again, this because I think he had time to think about this, his opening story he gives the tech detective when she shows up is that... The car, it didn't get used much. It was a wound of Robin's death. It's only been a year. So also just for people who like looking at like little Easter eggs, the headstone says Robin died on October 9th, 2018. So we are October 2019 is when the show is taking place. If that matters to you, if you want to place it somewhere, because we learned it's also been a year since since she was murdered. He tells this whole story about how he's embarrassed by not being able to move on from her at all, not really really able to get rid of her stuff, her papers, certainly not the car. Of course, we know Adam's using the car. It's, it's not a wound. It, the fucking thing is in use. I found that pretty believable. Would you, if you are someone listening to that story and they're basically saying, just let it go, it actually does me a favor for it to be gone. Let's not worry about it too, too much. I think maybe I, you know, if I respect this judge and I respect the pain he's in, I think I kind of say, yeah, I, I get it. I get it. We can let this one go. The, the the bad guy wins this day for stealing your your dead wife's car. Or the bad guy unknowingly did you a favor. Which is what he says. So I'm going to let it go. Like, I think that I would be, I think I would be okay with that excuse for the most part. I, I can see where Nancy's coming from, where she's saying no this is disrespectful and I'm not going to, you know, this isn't going to happen on my watch kind of thing. But I think that it was fair for him to turn around and say, I don't know. I see. I think he could have come back one more time and been like, no, seriously, Nancy, I can't go through answering any questions about an investigation about this. I can't handle it. Like my heart will break in half if I have to come identify the car when you find it. Like, I'm not okay with this. Please don't follow up with it. I think you could have gone back again. I think so. I think so. She was so vehement. She almost looked offended, though, that he would even ask this thing of her. Yeah, she said wrong cop. 
I was like, Ugh. not me, wrong cop, you know, wrong, wrong play. Like, that's not me. I'm going to find this piece of shit. Like, holy fucking Nancy, you're like, you're pulling out your gun in the office here. Relax. <laughs> Calm down, Nancy. Like, you know, I mean, she gets, she's invested in the death of the judge's wife, which as a friend, you, you appreciate, right? There has to be a part of Michael that's like, holy shit, Nancy Costello, like, is, is like on yeah. my side here. Like, she wants justice for the pain that I've been in this year. But right now, though, I can use a little less bulldog and a little more sympathy from her. <laughs> you know, Nancy has her own sense of justice and her own sense of, um, you know, doing what's right. And, and I think that, I think that this was a situation that was a really good example of, Michael misreading what the other person's going to do and not taking into account who they are and like what they bring to the scenario when you pull them in. So maybe a different, like she said, maybe a different cop would have been like, find a rollover on that because they're not, they're, they're not interested in investigating this broken down little car whose owner is fine with it being gone. They don't want to waste their time. Let's you know? look into that a little bit too, because there's two instances of this happening in this episode. Remember, Michael handpicks Nancy Costello. He handpicks Lee Delamere. He calls them both specifically when the plan was to bring Adam to the station, tell the story of what happened, the panic, the asthma, the accident. He he has judged her to be someone who's going to be sympathetic to that story. Maybe he's right with, with the little bit of Nancy justice that we're introduced to in this episode. But that's a very different kind of cop that you need for that in that scenario, then you need for just let it go. Like he did me a favor accidentally. You need like the desk sergeant that Kofi runs into who he can bribe into letting him go for a baseball. That's who you need to like yeah. let go of looking for this car. You know, he, he kind of brought the situation on himself by, by he inviting did. He her did, but it. like you, like you pointed out so well, he was pulling his, these players off the bench for a different game, you know, and then, and then he was handed a, a completely different game that he now has to play, but he still has to play the same players. And, you know, they are not responding in the way that he had hoped that it would play out. I mean, the look of surprise on his face when Nancy's like, oh, fuck no, like I'm going for this. I mean, it was, classic cranston it was a class it was a cc it was a total cc uh it was you know Je jesse telling him that he's not gonna make crystal meth with him anymore it was a classic cranston <laughs> it, not only is it the wrong player for the wrong game part of me watching that scene was thinking why didn't you just make it a, make up an excuse of why you called her originally just say you were you wanted to talk about a case or something but at first it seemed so smart because yeah, yeah, it sure. could play in so well right it was like i can make complete sense of why i was there and why i was in there even to the point where even if they said we have footage of you in the police station why were you there even that you could say i you know i was coming to to tell about the car being stolen and i i saw this family break down and i just was having this complete ptsd to robin's death i just had to get out of there like it was really pretty reasonable for him to go for this car thing but oh my god how it falls apart so fast did it shock you how fast it fell apart it did shock me how fast it fell apart because he had been so methodical he had been able to come up with everything he had been able to cover all the bases not only in this story but also from the bench we've seen him break down the shitty story that the cop had break down the bad alibi that the funeral for granddad whose name he doesn't know had he was able to see both sides of it construct a story and using the knowledge of how fast the alibis fall apart he says he literally says to adam not very long before that at the very beginning of the episode 
alibis always fall apart. I see it happen all the time. His alibi falls apart. I mean, the stories just don't make sense. I wanted to pick up on the thing you just said, that it does make sense because even on top of the reasons you added, having a cop who's sympathetic to your cause, if the cop is going to play ball with what you want, actually even aids in making sure the car gets gone, right? Because let's say some, let's say a cop does run a red light, right? Uh, let's say let's say Kofi runs a red light like he does and a cop does pull him over. If there's a cop in the, in the network that is saying, no, put the kibosh on this. We don't want this thing found. That's a cop who's actually even helping you and Charlie and, uh, you know, get rid of this thing, get rid of this car for good. You know, you're really making it work for you then. But yeah, wrong player, wrong game, as it turns out. What was the trip up that made you cringe the most? The part where Nancy's like, um, and Adam also leaves, leaves the keys on the on the tire and he's like what that right then that trip up moment i was like oh my god that makes no freaking sense like that was that was when i felt like the entire car debacle right then fell apart like this was like this was so weird and stupid straining straining the excuse of confusion due to anniversary of wife's death is i leave the keys on the front left tire adam was the last one to drive it Adam puts the keys on the front left tire also, like it's an inherited family trait. What? And then, and then fucking Adam saying, no, I don't drive that car. That was my mom's car. Oh! So many Desiato boys, you got to get your shit together. Layers. Oh, oh, man. To say nothing of Adam saying, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, about to confess the crime when the fucking cop walks through the door of their house. Like, without context, he's, like, putting his hands out for, like, like uh, handcuffs. Like, take me away, cop. He's like, no, he just drove me home. Yeah, he just has to use the bathroom. This, this cop's got to pee. <laughs> yeah, I, I had the exact same ultimate cringe moment. I mean, and uh, listen, it I, makes no, it makes no sense. sense. Nor does it make sense that you wouldn't know that the entire front grill of your car is destroyed. Oh, who can say after so much time with these old cars, you know, if your car is has like physical damage where you need like, you know, ties to keep the thing together. You didn't think about the damage to the car, to the grill of the car being messed up. Your best answer is, who can say? Who can <laughs> say? Well, well, what did you hit at some point that it got messed up? <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, we're, we're not done with Nancy Costello. She is a dog with a bone here. When the muffler system falls out, that sets a whole set of things into motion. So talk to me about what fell out. It was the motorcycles it's part. The- it looked, the to, it looked to me like the shock absorber shot one of the shock absorber assembly parts because like the green strut there looks like it was okay. part of the shock system so when the when a, especially a dirt bike and a motorbike is bouncing up and down the way re, the reason it, it doesn't break your ass is that the vehicle has shock absorbers in it the, the coils you know compress and and decompress to take the shock of the frame of the system as you go over bumps and stuff that's what it looked like to me part of that assembly i know that you know when 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 people are watching sometimes it's unclear to them what exactly that they saw you know and so and you know just to be clear it was a piece of the motorcycle not a piece of the volvo oh yeah no no it was it was definitely part of the motorcycle not only was it 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 was it was the shock assembly of some kind of dirt bike or or motor bike of some sort but it also was that green and remember jimmy baxter talking to his son in the first episode about how the green was a signature of that classic 1970 
1974 cafe racer that he got him and that the green was a specific comment that he mentions in the first episode there it is it's laying there like glowing history to the past on the floor there when it comes when it dislodges from the bottom of the volvo my heart just sank Oh, I obviously this had to come out somehow, right? Kofi wasn't going to get off scot-free. That wouldn't make sense as a TV show. But I I kind of cringed and, and put my hands up over my face kind of thing when it fell out. And Michael looks like he just poops himself. Like, uh, yeah. What? And, and Nancy's like, what in the fuck is that? I don't even know what you do. How do you possibly respond appropriately in that moment? What could you possibly, possibly do? Besides just stare. Right. That maybe makes sense of why the grill is messed up. Uh, maybe maybe that motorcycle <laughs> part is related to that damage you didn't know. But, of course, they have a perfect scapegoat, right? So even still, that, assemb- that all of that happening still doesn't put the crosshairs really on Michael because the car has been, quote-unquote, stolen. But it does, unfortunately, put the crosshairs on Kofi. Let's shift to Kofi. What's your hot take on him? Did you like him? Not like him? He's a car thief. He's a gangbanger or sweet boy gone awry in a bad neighborhood. He seemed so young. He seemed so like he was just doing what he was told, you know, jogging over to the car when they called him. His his face was so, like you said, like he was expecting to fist bump. He was expecting like he was kind of had this like naivete about him, you know, like he didn't walk over there all slow and sullen like, oh, great, I'm going to have to go do some horrible thing he like jogged over there you know like like a puppy not having any idea someone's gonna smack his nose you know much more innocent than that i feel like maybe they were setting us up to think about him he you know his his attitude was much much more innocent than that even throughout the entire time we spend with him him being so taken aback that they would ask him to take the fall and to accept you know his fate like this using his mom and and his family as the counterbalance he seemed shocked he like it wasn't how like it works. oh this is how it yes exactly he doesn't and so all that like he's a hardened criminal or any thoughts that it would that would flow through anyone's head because he's like this gangbanger i don't think so i think that he was initiated into the gang as they say affiliated if you will but i don't think that he was just this like hard ass kid he was much, much more just in it for the for the protection that it gives himself and his family. Yeah, I think it's a cost of living, not even doing business. I think it's a cost of living in that neighborhood is, you know, every family, it's almost like the Hunger Games, wherever, you know, there needs a tribute from each district. I, it almost felt like, it felt very Boys in the Hood to me, if you remember the movie from John mm-hmm. Singleton from the 90s. Uh, it, you know, it felt very much like that in just the little neighborhood segment we saw there, that he's the oldest now of that family family he needs to kind of go to work in the neighborhood so that his family doesn't get harassed by desire the the name of the crew um that being said he does look so young he looks so out of place and so naive and and when he finds the baseball and his his face lights up when the cops pull him out of the car he's got the he, he had the baseball in his hand he was tossing it like his day was going pretty good uh, did you notice him putting his hood up and down in the na- in the judge's neighborhood as, as he was walking yeah. through? Well, I took it the same, you know, under the same kind of category of like, he really didn't even know how to commit a crime. He was unsure if he looked, if it was smarter to kind of stay with the hood on, maybe, maybe he wouldn't be as noticed. And then he was thinking, well, maybe it makes me more noticeable. So I'm going to take it off. Wait, then maybe they can see me. Like he was so unsure of even how to commit the crime. To the point where he didn't commit to memory where he's taking it. He has it like on his little map quest on his phone and everything. Like there's so many parts to it that just say innocence. He really doesn't know what he's doing. 
But that being said, he has some level of street smarts, right? Because he is kind of able to use the baseball, some good talk and some innocence talk. When the death sergeant asks him why you're here, he start, he's starting to do his spiel to get some food and to get himself like sprung. He says, uh, for boosting a car, allegedly. When he says the alleged, like it made me laugh out loud. Because, you know, he sounds like a kid who's watching like Law and Order and like knows exactly, some like, terms but from, like, that's Law the Order. thing. Like, I'm not giving any, like, oh, he's got such street cred or something like that. No, I'm taking this like, yeah, he's a guy who's talked himself out of a lot of situations, probably having to not do as many horrible things as someone who can't talk himself out of a situation. His gift of gab was just like one more point in the column of like, he does what he can to get out of situations. He doesn't, he didn't go up and strangle the cop and get out of there. He sweet talked him out of it. And I think he probably uses that skill all the whole time out on the streets. The show is in another way highlighting how different these people are and how they're treated differently. This is another example, like the conversation at the beginning of three different 17-year-olds at different points in their life. I think if Adam is driving that car and runs over light, he doesn't get the same treatment that Kofi gets driving that car. All justice is not equal of this and taking him to the black site later on where they beat up on him, I think is all part of the show demonstrating that justice is not delivered all the same way. So the timing and the editing in the episode ends up being really important, right? Because we watch, we're watching Kofi talk to the desk sergeant, sweet talk him with the baseball, trying to get himself let out of the police precinct, right? He's trying to get himself gone and he's being successful. The cop has already handed over his food, which Kofi is eating. And now he's, you know, sweet talking it with Mariano Rivera autographed baseball to get sprung from jail while we're cutting back and forth to Michael and Nancy Costello talking about the stolen car being recovered and all of the questions Michael can't really successfully answer. And then the assembly falls out of the bottom of the car. I don't know about you, Caroline, but I'm sitting there watching Kofi. He's starting to collect his things. He's about to go. I'm saying to myself, 60 seconds, 60 seconds, and he's gone because mm. you're watching the cop pick up the phone. Obviously, it's Nancy calling to say, hold that guy there. We've got more questions for him. And I'm just I, like a clock in my head. I said, move faster, Kofi. Move yes. faster. 60 seconds and you're gone from yes. the police station. And no, he ends yes. up walking right in front of him. And now he's in the, and now he's really in it. This is no longer just a blown red light and a stolen car. This is murder now that we're talking and, about. And this Kofi. was this was one of those times, too, when it was like, whoa, that escalated quickly. Like, I mean, it went from like, yes, he's being detained. He's like sitting there just chit chatting with the cop to like super outlandish insanity happening. Just like it just it just keeps going like it doesn't stop from here to the end of this episode. Yeah. And again, I think this all goes back to Nancy Costello is the right cop to call for a certain thing, but the very wrong cop for what Michael was trying to accomplish here. If she is, I mean, she's a detective, you know, who is running down a stolen car and she does it really fucking well. I mean, she <laughs> gets the system, the New Orleans Police Department system working, humming like a machine to to avenge this dead woman's stolen car. And all of that backfires, and it all backfires all over Kofi's face, because now the escalation is real. It goes from getting out for a, a red light and a stolen car to being taken to this police black site where he's beaten constantly. He's thrown in a car and, and pumped full of monoxide, carbon monoxide, all to reveal where the Baxter cell phone is, to reveal what he did, his connection, 
it leads to Desire calling him in jail, right? He's now sitting in the parish prison, the Orleans parish prison, and he's getting a, a surreptitious phone call from the Desire saying, listen, you have to take the fall for this or else your family will be protected if you play ball. Your family will you know, come to harm if you don't. The escalation is tremendous. And this is just a little kid. This is not a hardened gangbanger. The thing I thought of you watching this part of the show, and I wanted to get your reaction to it, the judge making him strip down to reveal his gang affiliation. How humiliating is that? No matter who it is, I can't believe a judge would ever do that in real life. Yeah, it was sick. I, I mean, I do know that judges absolutely do that kind of shit in real life, and it's horrific. I, I think that it's so terrible. It does, you know, work to Michael's advantage in that it's one more thing that he can say, like, look, I need to get involved with this because this is just a, such a travesty to my profession. I want to help this kid kind of his, thing. His humiliation humiliated me is what he says to Lee yes. uh, to get her to represent Kofi. So huge and way to twist that. But man, I mean, I think that that happens every day in a lot of courtrooms. It was sick. It was sick. It was was twisted. It was demented. And Michael, I mean, he obviously he's covering tracks here. He's giving Lee something to do for why he called her down here. The other person he handpicked to become involved in this originally, obviously thinking that she would be representing Adam. He now tries to put Lee, you know, on the case of Kofi. Now, two things about Lee. One. Is it just me or was there kind of some chemistry between Michael and her despite their age difference? A hundred percent. Yes, there's there's definitely some chemistry brewing there. On both of their parts, you know, the, the let's go get some wine and talk about it. And then she even says to him later on, she's like, as long as there's no law talk. <laughs> but two, she has this really curious statement that she says to Michael. She says, knowing what I've been through, knowing my story, knowing who I am, you're going to ask me to represent this guy. What could that possibly be about? Did you have any theories? I have. I don't know. I mean, I can think of horrible theories, but I don't have any concrete good theories about what her possible backstory can be. But I really want to know. I mean, I think you could go a couple different ways. You could go from, you know, she has come from, you know, the streets herself and has like, you know, raised up and and been, you know, now in the justice system and, and you know, doesn't uh, look look to the side when things like this happen. You could look at it like, no, maybe she was like a victim of some crime that happened from either this particular gang or a gang, you know, somewhere else. There's probably a variety of things that that it could be. Maybe she has a sibling or something who is who's similar or, you know, I don't know. There's a lot that could be there. But clearly, knowing that she has history means that, you know, there is more complication here. Uh, yeah, I, I think there's a I think there's going to be an interesting story there. I think whatever her backstory is combined with this chemistry combined with it's got to kind of how we said that it obviously has to come out to Adam's girlfriend, teacher that what happened i feel like lee is going to find out sooner rather than later what really happened also but from michael's end like i feel like she struck me as someone that he's gonna feel like he can trust in a way he can't trust nancy costello because nancy is a cop first duty first honoring robin's memory first and i got the impression lee is going to be more of a softer touch with him uh, any or not softer touch more of a a softer place for him to land his head and maybe confide in the other person he's going to end up confiding in i feel like he has to is charlie what was your feeling about charlie getting involved here charlie who's now running for mayor agrees without hesitation to get gone robin's car 
did that surprise you that he agreed so quickly? Did it surprise you that he calls a cop to get rid of the car? I guess my answer is yes, in that I was surprised that he was willing to um, call a cop, I guess, in particular. Um, you know, they did a great job of showing how crooked the, the cops were across the board, you know, from, you know, taking the baseball to, to release the kid to, of course, that horrific, you know, hosing scene in the car. Obviously, the, the cops, are, you know, are, are insane here, but I didn't think Charlie was kind of wrapped up in all that. And it seems to me that from all that I could take from Charlie is that maybe he was wrapped up in a lot of this stuff and knows a lot of people and still has ties, but is trying himself to kind of distance himself as he's moving up in the, in the ladder. I think now I I may be wrong, but I think that's what's happening and why I think things are going to go really South with old Charlie. From their first moments on screen, these two are best friends. It's clear they're, I mean, he calls them, you're my brother. You know, like, I don't have a brother, but I do. All of that. I I love that. I like their relationship. Uh, So that didn't give me pause. I was surprised that he called a cop, uh, and the the cop's name is Rudy Cunningham. uh, And Rudy then calls the gang member from Desire. Way to explode the web of people involved in the crime in literally about 90 seconds flat. This is no longer a covert affair. There's a fuck ton of people who are now involved in this. And I think if you had asked Michael, if Michael, if Charlie had said to Michael, all right, I got a game plan. I'm going to go call my cop friend who's going to call a gang member to get rid of the car that you're asking me to get rid of. I feel like Michael says maybe, you know what? I'm going to look for an alternative avenue to explore and uh, to get rid of this thing. No, no. Do you think Michael's going to be on board with a cop member and a gang member all getting involved so quickly in in this conspiracy? No, I think <laughs> I think that I, I don't know what he thought. I, I kind of think that he thought Charlie was just going to ask like an old friend from high school or something like that. I don't necessarily know that he even realizes how wrapped up Charlie is in with the system and on all the different crooked facts and if he does know then like god dang you know shame on him like it's kind of like you know shitting where you eat like what are you doing you know if people are going to be brought in that are all tied into your own regular life too yeah no doubt and no doubt and let's talk about charlie for a second uh charlie figaro uh he i mean he calls rudy this is the guy he obviously thinks of right away to call to disappear a car to a chop shop uh and he says i'm gonna make you my chief of police when i'm mayor fuck that's not who we need running the police department. The guy, <laughs> the guy who has speed dialed to the gang members to get rid of to steal cars. Yeah. Um, but the game of telephone made me laugh because we see it start from Charlie and go up the chain that leads with Kofi at the beginning. And then when Kofi pleads guilty and the, and the courtroom gasps, we see the reverse of the telephone at the end of the episode. The gang member calls Rudy Cunningham, says we're safe. He's going to play ball. Rudy calls Charlie, says we're safe. Charlie has a sigh of relief and, and Charlie thinks we're done. Charlie thinks we're done, but Charlie, 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 we are not mm. done. We are mm-hmm. not done. There was a conversation that I was curious what your take on it was. When Michael needs a ride, we talked about the cop who has to pee. What mm-hmm. did you think of that car ride? And the cop, I was he shaming the judge? Was he shaming Michael for letting the underwear bandit off because of what the guy eventually did? 
or was he just like trying to fill in backstory? Like, oh, you didn't know that the funny underwear case, you know, that guy turned into a horrible rapist and stuffed underwear in these people's mouths and his victim's mouths. What did you think of that conversation? What was the cop's intent in telling him that? What did you think of Michael talking about how you have to try a case on the evidence, not what you fear a man may become? I don't know if this was a bad read, but it a little bit made me wonder about Adam, to be honest, and that maybe be coming out of like nowhere. But, you know, the the assumed complete and total innocence of Adam, that he is a perfect good guy based on all evidence in front of you. We know that Adam has secrets. We can guess that he has more secrets than the teacher. So to me, I'm like, you know, if you only have certain evidence in front of you, that's all you have to go and protect the guy in front of you, right? And I know that all sounds crazy and it kind of feels like, why would you say that it would be Adam? But he fits that whole story of like, what if you what if you don't recognize a small crime, even though murder is not a small crime, but what if you try to cover up or don't realize it for what it is and then he does something bigger in the future and then you regret it? I know that sounds crazy. No, it doesn't. I understand. I, I totally see where your take is. But for me... It was Michael talking about himself. Okay, talk me through that. For, but for the same reasons, though, that Michael sees himself as a fair and honorable man, the, the kind of person who will go to take a cop to task if the cop is doing wrong, but will also take a guy who blows off co- appearing in court and uses his uh, a grandfather's funeral as an excuse to task if he senses he's doing wrong. He he lives by a code. Michael, I think, does, and I think he I think he props himself up with that code. And he has now, not to use a Brian Cranston pun, is starting to break bad and is doing things that are violating that code that he he lives by. And so the idea of you have to try him based on all of the good deeds he's done, not the Pandora's box of evil that he is potentially having to open in order to protect his son, right? Because again, I think Adam is the one who did this crime. I think though, at the end of the day, this is really going to be Michael's story. And so I think the idea of not on who you fear he may become is Michael thinking of himself. I don't think he thinks that his son is going to become some kind of criminal. I think Michael is worried about how far he's going to have to go just just in this one day's events there's a there's a there's a young man now sitting in jail accused of the crime of this murder because of events in, that put in motion by michael uh you know i think he's already starting to think about how far am i going to have to go to clean up this mess to right the ship not only for adam but for myself also how evil may i become and what will people think of me when i have to do those things Will protecting my son be justification enough for all of these things I may have to now start to do? I even would throw out the idea that even not thinking about all of the things that he has to go through, if you just went back to to his neutral standpoint of who he was sitting on the bench before he even knew any of this happened, he would have felt solid in his beliefs that he had made good choices and that he had read situations correctly. So telling this story of... How, in fact, maybe you didn't follow up on this case, Judge, but you actually made a terrible call. You made a terrible call years ago, and it cost these people their lives. Did you even realize that? So before any of this even kicked off, you already were coming from a bad uh, or a misinformed place that you thought you didn't make mistakes when it came to assessing the situation. And in fact, you did. And it was horrible. 
So I think that that even was enough to just shake him of not maybe even how far he has to go or whatever, but he wasn't even coming from a place of like no errors, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think I think overall he seemed very annoyed by the conversation and the line of questioning. Well, think, it was but, a weird conversation to have. Right, and I think that I mean, if you're looking at the cop's motivations, I think the cop was trying to nudge him a little bit. You know, again, this is just the day after he he belittled one of this cop's brothers on the stand. You know that shit got around. I think so. We said it in the first episode that like, because, you know, I questioned about whether a cop wouldn't recognize who he was. This is another case of like, you know, cops did recognize who he is. Yeah, this cop, uh, this is no peeing off of the bridge cop that doesn't recognize the judge. This cop fucking knows full well who this guy is and knows that he, you know, broke down. Uh, and and probably as he sees it, let a drug person off, you know, by not yeah. playing ball with this cop's testimony. You know, no one would have batted an eye had he let the cop's story stand. Right. right. I think that's a, one of the points of the show is, you know, if no one speaks up for the for miscarriage of justice, then miscarriage of justice will reign. Uh, and, you know, so, yeah, I think I think the cop was definitely needling him. And I think Michael, for a myriad of reasons, bristled hard back at it. I did want to ask you, in in talking about the police officers, and I don't know if you were going to go deeper into this, but why the huge hunt for the cell phone? Why is that what Kuzak is screaming about wanting? I think it's because of that 911 call, because it was, it traveled. And, okay. and it, remember... Uh, Adam takes that phone not only not only is he on the phone with the 911 call for like three minutes right the Mm -hmm. time code at the beginning gives like the time code on that tape and I think it was almost about three minutes worth of of a 911 call but then 911 calls him back while he's getting gas right and he's when he's when he's sitting at the red light with the cops next to him right the heartbeat vibrating of the 911 call and then uh, when he throws the the phone into the river so that phone traveled quite a bit of distance okay but but do they need the physical phone for that they're probably assuming it has evidence on it or at least his fingerprints to put him there i don't know man there's got to be some actual data or something in that phone that is more interesting than just that right i mean my god they bring the actual like swat team in like looking for the phone i don't know there just feels like there's something up well the question well it's a good question because there's there's two things that maybe one it is damning evidence to put the person who has the cell phone of the dead boy at the scene of the crime. Because how else would you get the guy's cell? Why else would you have his cell phone if you were not the one who killed him? But two, it's possible and maybe explains the the overreaction, the SWAT team in the, in the house and the, and the black site police treatment, that this was actually a Baxter concern and that there is Baxter family business on that phone. That they I are feel like about. there's Baxter family business on that phone because it doesn't make sense. Yeah, talking about it I out mean, loud makes sense that, that, that that's I mean, thinking about any other bit of information you could get from where the phone traveled and, or, you know, even phone calls made from that phone because we all know that that damning call to Michael from Adam on that phone feels like it's sitting there looming, but that could all be traced by just phone records. You don't need the physical phone at all. So there's something in that physical phone that the Baxter family wants back. Or wants to, or wants to make sure is gone and destroyed. And or the police want for evidence for something else. Either one, I don't know if it's Baxter driven or police driven, either one, they want the contents of the phone, in my opinion. No, I think that's good. I, and then actually brings me to, I would like to talk to you about 
uh, predictions and questions that we want answered in the upcoming episodes. But I think we should get to Hunter's interview now and then come up and wrap up the show and talk about some question marks that we think need to be answered in the coming weeks. How does that sound? Sounds great. Perfect. All right, guys. So that takes us to the end of our discussion of part two of Your Honor. But please stick around because right now Caroline and I are going to speak with Hunter Duhan, who plays Adam. It's a great conversation. Uh, it really uh, puts a spotlight on this character and how and what Hunter thinks of him and just his entire experience of working on the show. So it, it's a great listen. I hope you stick around and listen to it. And then Caroline and I will come back and we'll wrap up this week's episode. Joining us tonight on Tales from Yaya's The Your Honor podcast is Hunter Duhan, who plays Adam Desiato, the troubled young man. Hey, Adam. Hey, Adam. Hey, Hunter. How are you doing? Thanks for joining us tonight. <laughs> yeah, of course. Thanks for having me on here. Before we get into like tonight's episode, we just finished watching episode two, and, and there's a lot of stuff with Adam in these first two episodes. But I want to take a step back and talk to us. How did you get this role? This is like prime time, like Showtime, Brian Cranston. This is like a real big, like coming out moment role for you. Like, can you tell us about the casting of it? Yeah, it's like the definition of a dream role. Like you said, just being with Brian Cranston. But you know, we did this kind of cast roundtable the other day. And everyone had these glamorous stories of when they got the call to get the offer to be on the show. And I've done a couple of interviews and they asked me like what attracted me to the role. And I'm always really flattered when people phrase it in a way that makes it sound like I had a choice. But, you know, I've been out in LA just auditioning and working for the last eight years. And so this was just an audition I got. And when I got it, I thought I had, you know, no chance in hell of booking it. The whole process, though, took about four months from like a self-tape in my apartment in Burbank. And then the final round, they flew me out to New York because Brian was doing network on Broadway. And that was when we did the network test. And the first time I met him and we read together. Were you a fan of his, like a Malcolm in the Middle kid or, or a Breaking Brad, a bad guy? I assume everyone knows him, but maybe maybe you never watched those shows. <laughs> hey, what if I was like, who? Um, <laughs> you you spell no, it with a Y, Mr. Cranston? That's very odd. Yeah. Like, <laughs> oh, weird. No, I was a huge Breaking Bad fan. Me and my brother loved that show. Or we've watched it several times through, actually. When, when we first got down to New Orleans, it was right when El Camino was about to come out. And, you know, I thought I had, like, the inside scoop. I was over at the house Brian was staying in, and we were having dinner. And, you know, we're supposed to be, like, bonding, getting ready to start shooting and be a believable father and son. And I asked him about El Camino and if he was in it, because I was all the rumors flying around at that time. And he lied straight to my face and told me that he wasn't in it. And now we know it wasn't true. Cranston. I mean, that's classic Cranston, though, right? I mean, <laughs> Isn't it? He, he's a known El Camino liar. He's like, yeah. he's like, that's a CC, a classic Cranston. So. Oh, my God. That's so funny. It's so funny. Lordy. We've been talking in our first episode, um, Hunter, about how this show is based on the Israeli show. Did you have an opportunity after you got the role to check out that show at all and see how that actor portrayed Adam at all? You know, he actually reached out to me over Instagram, kind of like you, Mike. He slid into the DMs. And... Did he we include got to... a picture? Was it an inappropriate picture? Was, it, was he one of the creepy ones? No, no. He was a class act, unlike you. Uh, no. Hey. <laughs> but he was just introducing himself, and he actually just recently had the director send me the first two seasons with subtitles, and I haven't checked them out yet because, you know, we just wrapped the week of Thanksgiving 
because we had to take a hiatus due to COVID. So I didn't want to check it out before finishing our show, but now I'm really excited to dive into it. Actually, talk to us, because the show filmed entirely in New Orleans, the entire yeah. show. Had you been there before? What was it like? I mean, that's a whole vibe unto itself. New Orleans is amazing. Have you been there? I have not. I have not. Yes, many times. Yeah. <laughs> loving, loving the New Orleans. <laughs> yeah. I hadn't been since I was like a little kid, and going to New Orleans as an adult was a much different, much better experience. (laughs) You know, we had so much fun when we went the first time around. I mean, we were there from September 2019 through March of this year. So we got to do Mardi Gras, which was amazing. Brian was actually a king in one of the floats. In one of the full the whole parade. Uh, oh my god! On one of the crews, that's amazing. I that's love a, that's that. another classic Cranston, always with the floats. <laughs> CC, exactly. Uh, <laughs> so it was kind of sad going back this time because you know, we literally went to set and then went back to our apartments or hotels or wherever the cast was staying and couldn't go out couldn't see anyone and couldn't hang out with people outside of set and the actors. We all had to wear these like shields that went around our neck and kind of like covered our faces like a cone of shame for an animal after the vet. Uh, so it was, it was a weird experience to go back, but the crew is really amazing down there. I think because it's a smaller film community, so they all know each other. So like getting on a set where everybody's already really good friends was a lot of fun. Did you feel safe? Did you feel like they were able to keep everything, you know, locked down on set and when and interacting with other people? Yeah, I did. I mean, we were tested three times a week and there were so many protocols in place and hand washing stations and health and safety people going around and making sure people were following the rules because you know on sets everyone starts to try to get lax about it but you know everyone did a good job and yeah it felt safe and we got it done i think i was at the end of it just so relieved that we were able to finish the show that i didn't even have time to get sad about the show ending Oh, I was going to say, I'm so grateful that you guys got a chance to actually finish. I know looking back on scenes that were filmed, thinking of them as real scenes, especially with COVID now, there's like this extra layer of like germs. Like I'm thinking of the the huge scene, of course, of when Adam hits Rocco. And I'm thinking of the blood <laughs> splurting into your face. That, had, that takes on a whole new world when you have COVID, everything going on. We're all so much more, you know, masked up and everything that the idea of you breathing in his mouth... <laughs> After, uh, like, Ooh, I don't know yes. how. Maybe I'm sticking my fingers in his mouth. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, oh my God. You know, pre pandemic, that, you know, that was very, I don't even know what to say. Brave of you, I suppose. You did it all the time. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Who doesn't stick fingers in people's mouths? But, you know, post, you know, in COVID times, it's like, oh my God, I don't even want to be within literally six feet of someone else's mouth. So talk to us a lot about that scene because, oh my God, obviously, this is the scene where I had seen it first. Every person I saw it with, I was like this, don't look down. Don't look down for a minute. Like, I'm like that jerky, like, partner that I'm like, are you looking down eating your dinner? How dare you? You need to look up for this entire it's scene. It's all important. They're all the clues yes, are here. Yes. All- I was like, this is the minute. This is the minute. Like, stay here. Yeah, this is where Adam leaves a trail of evidence. Oh, my God. <laughs> Hunter, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to spur- besmirch Adam's reputation, but he is not, he is not a criminal mastermind by any, any length of the imagination at all. I don't, I don't think that Adam has a great great reputation for you to take down. <laughs> I think 
think he's a very sweet boy. He's just no, like, you know, he's no Moriarty or anything like that. Yeah, no. Bless oh his heart, God. though. Bless he his tried heart. so hard. We blessed his heart hardcore in this one. My southern roots were blessing all his heart. Talk to me, though. Oh Talk gosh. to me about filming that scene. How did, how did it actually work? I assume there was a lot of stunt crew involved. Talk to us. Well, the listeners want to know everything. Uh, yeah, that scene was crazy. And, you know, every beat of it, I got to give praise to Peter Moffat because every single thing that happened in that was as scripted. It was like three pages of action lines. Wow. And we shot it over three days and it was really fucking hot in New Orleans in September. So that part where I'm like crawling on the pavement with some of those oh, shots, we just kind of get like one take at and they were trying to like wet the concrete down in between. I'm so glad you said that because Mike being a New Yorker and, and me being down here from Texas, when he was like, why aren't more people walking around? I was like, do you know how hot it is right now? Like in New Orleans and they're trying to like, walk, like oh people don't God. walk around. It's, no. it's sizzling, sizzling hot. Especially New Orleans and especially down the lower ninth, there are just these areas that are empty. You know, that's the whole realization for Adam once the 911 operator is like, is, is there's got to be somebody you can pass the phone to, anybody that can help you. And he looks around like, oh, shit, yeah, yeah. And then, oh, I'm totally alone. And that's the first time it enters his head that he could leave in a panic and totally irrational decision he thinks he should leave and you know makes that terrible decision but you know overall that scene was i don't know really hard but really fun it was like my first full week on set so it was kind of trial by fire but it was great have you ever done any kind of action sequence like that before was this all like like i've never had to do this before i've never crawled across the an intersection and stuck my finger in someone's mouth i mean i link into your personal <laughs> life but at least as far as acting though if you've you know ever had, had blood spit on you and stuff so no i had there's so many first in this show that i have never done on screen and this scene was most of those but i had a friend recently that texted me and was like oh my god i i Basically, everyone texts me about the show, says they can hardly watch that scene. But they said, like, the part where he spit up all the blood on you, that that was disgusting. How did you do that? And I was like, well, they put a bunch of fake blood in his mouth and he spit it on me. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, we're giving you a lot of credit here, but that could not have been easy for Rocco or the you know the actor playing Rocco to lay in that kind of position and just be all gross and gurgly. And, ooh, and just... Ben is such a trooper. It was so hot and he was just laying on the pavement for three days in this sticky fake blood. And by the end of the day, we're like peeling him off of the concrete. And he also, Rocco was super tan by the end of that week. Well, oh, just the hilarious. front of him, though, not his back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, just his face, yeah. Oh, my God. Uh, I, I, how long were you picking out, like, fake sugary blood, uh, you know, at the end of the day's filming? Because it comes out, it's just this big glob. I don't mean to keep harping on it. It just gave me, like, nightmares. Like, it sat with me. And we watched the episode, like, three times because we watched it originally when the screamers came in. And then we watched it to get ready to record. So we watched it a lot. And it's just like, oh, my God, it's it's horrible every single time I watch it. it yeah, every time I see it, it's just, ooh, I feel it on me. Well, I think part of the reason it, like, really hits people's heart is the way that Ed uh, Edward Berger directed it. Because he had the same kind of effect when he did Patrick Melrose. Like, I watched that, and I was having such visceral reactions that I kind of knew that this scene was going to be crazy with him directing. And I think it turned out great. But he was always calling for more blood and more sweat. <laughs> and 
<laughs> you like it would turn into like a horror movie. I wasn't like picking out pieces, but the, that blood will like stain your skin. And they have this trick uh, where they you know lather you in shaving cream, and that helps it come off. But at the end of those three days, there was just kind of nothing you could do. We were stained. <laughs> Tell us about your relationship with Benjamin Wadsworth, who plays Rocco. I mean, you guys must have gotten close. I mean, my God, you were lip-locked there for a little bit. So that must have changed things. <laughs> yeah, uh, Ben is great. I can't imagine doing that scene with anybody else because we kind of got to hang out a few times with some of the other, like, we, like the kids on the show. Lamar, who plays Kofi, and Lily, who plays uh, Fia Baxter. He's such a funny guy and he just went for it and it was nice just to have somebody there who was just like all in and they're coming up and doing last looks and we're just kind of staring each other in the eyes like both trying to get there and i don't know i think he did such a great job it's so hard to watch him gurgling and trying to breathe and i don't know i just think he's amazing uh i'm gonna cut in here with something completely unrelated to the show but i was a big benjamin wadsworth fan in deadly class and he eventually got engaged to Stella Maeve, who uh, was, I'm a big fan of the magicians. And so and they just I, had a baby. They just had a baby. And I'm, I, I, I was so happy to hear about them. I don't know either of them, but I'm big fans of both of their shows. And so I was very happy uh, when that all happened. And that's my little Benjamin Wadsworth Stella Maeve <laughs> uh, side tangent. So. Yeah, I don't know her, but she seems great. And yeah, Ben is amazing. And when we were shooting... You know, he was 19 and he's like equal parts goofy child and then like this wise old man that would like talk <laughs> about welcoming his child into the world and how he's never been this happy. And I was just like, who are you? But he's so the funny. best. He's the coolest. I'm sorry they had to kill him. It was an accident. <laughs> it was an accident. It was that damn inhaler. It was the damn Thank inhaler. You. Someone call Michael Stuhlbarg and get him off my case. Oh, he's he's a scary dude. He, I, I mean, those eyes, those eyes, like they glow in the dark. You do not want to have Jimmy Baxter coming after you. That's for sure. Actually, I want to talk about the asthma because it's a really. I mean, obviously, everyone knows someone that has asthma. I think it's a pretty common condition, but. Adams is chronic and very bad. And that we've gotten, and we got to see it obviously in the first episode. It's kind of the thing, the panic attack leads to the asthma attack, leads to the inhaler, leads to the car accident with the, with Rocco. And then in episode two, you're having this fight with your dad and you have this panic attack and it leads to this asthma attack. It's a very specific kind of feeling. What did you do to like learn how to reenact a really convincing asthma attack? Is that a skill you had or like a party trick you had? Or did you like, how did you prepare for that? Yeah, I used to just do it all the time for people. <laughs> your, no, party, um, your parties were not well attended, but you knew how to do yeah. it though. So I was wondering, like, why does no one want to come hang out with me? Um, <laughs> no, the sound guys hated me on this show because every day they're like, oh, we're going to do some more wheezing today. Um, <laughs> but like, like you said, there's so many people that have it and once I got the show and started talking to people about it, so many people I know were like, oh, yeah, I have asthma. Or I found out even my stepdad had it when he was a kid and then kind of grew out of it. But I, I met with two people that have it. And one of them, uh, one of my friends, he was an actor. And so I like when I was still auditioning for the scene or for the show was having him help me. And then after I got it, I really you know wanted to do my best at making it convincing and real because I didn't you know, just thought that'd be insulting to not try. So I, I, I hope it works. But um, 
I, I met with a pulmonologist in LA and watched all these horrible videos and read everything I could about it. And yeah, for Adam, a lot of it is a panic and like emotional triggers that bring it on. And so obviously on the first episode, it being the anniversary of his mom's death, he's already feeling a little shaky and then the crash, everything goes out of control. And again, in episode two, this latest one, I mean, it's a full on PTSD attack. And that's how I looked at that scene where I ended up crawling on the ground away from Brian I spoke to two psychologists about that because I wanted to make that really clear in my mind that Adam is suffering from PTSD from the crash. I feel like the horror in your eyes when you turn and look and and it is your dad, it is Brian and not like someone else. I think that like conveyed everything. I knew right when you turned and you made that like <gasps> kind of face, like I knew you were having PTSD situation right there. So well done. I totally got you there. Well, thank you so much. So when you were not affected by asthma, but did have some heavy breathing, would be oh, <laughs> when Lord. we uh, had tonight's Oh, Lord, we're going to make this reveal. We're gonna make blush, Caroline. I'm going to make a real <laughs> well, blush, Where is this going? <laughs> It's going to go exactly where you think it's going. (laughs) So it's revealed in this episode that Adam is sleeping with his teacher. It turns out that this lovely woman is Um, as if you don't have enough on your plate. You're also trying to balance this, you know, hot for teacher situation. So without being too spoiler or anything, will we learn more about their relationship as we're moving forward from episode two? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> like, how can I figured. I this about yeah. And I know things? it's a hard one because, yeah, I mean, obviously spoilery, but I feel like when you add in a love interest like that and you can just tell me if we're on the right track or not, I feel like that's like such an Achilles heel. Like it's going to it's going to be something that is going to break this. You know, we're not going to tell anybody, anybody, anybody kind of feel. Yeah. Adam's got a lot of secrets he needs to keep and they're kind of all intersecting and causing problems for the other one because now all of a sudden his dad is wants to control every single part of his life and is you know wants to know where he is at all times and who he's talking to and what he's saying and what he's not saying and then on the other side of it Sophia who plays Franny you know we talked a lot about our backstory and you know how and when we would have gotten together and you know, without being creepy, I think there's a level of Franny reminds Adam of his mom. And I think they got together in the aftermath of when she died because, you know, she was there for him. And now he can't really turn to her in the same way. So it causes a strain on their relationship, too. It's not also just like a girlfriend that he can't tell. There's already this power dynamic issue with her being a teacher which, I right. mean, listen, there, there's this, I mean, there's a, literally a Hulu show about this right now with a female teacher and a male student. And, it, you know, so. I know. It, yeah. I, that, that was so funny, the timing of that show coming out. But I think you guys I do. Hit, I, I love that you, show. They're doing great. Yeah. I think you guys are the cuter pair. I'm more, into, I'm more invested <laughs> well, in you guys. Yeah, of course. Um, but no, I mean, <laughs> but, I mean, I think no matter how male fantasy it, it is or whatever, there's still a power dynamic there. So there's already going to be this like you know, Adam, I know something's wrong kind of issue where you could see. And he already has to keep it a secret. It's not like just like a regular girlfriend. There's already so many levels on top of it. And Adam, you know, is already kind of straining. You can already see in this episode, like he's really straining with the guilt and stuff. So I'm I'm excited to see kind of how that plays out. You, you mentioned Michael, the uh, Brian Cranston's character, trying to control everything. He has a line in this episode, which you're very young. You don't, I'm presuming, don't have a, a kid yet. But he says... 
if you no, want. I'm not like Ben. Yeah, if you're not, you're not you're not a wise old man like Ben. I'm not, hey, I'm not a wise old father. He says, <laughs> "If you won't listen to me, how can I keep you safe?" When he says that in this episode, he says that to you. I literally put my hands up and I said, preach it, brother. Preach it because I've got a kid. And, I, you know, I'm like, I literally say that to him all the time. Like, you need to listen to me. I, I, it was the most dad moment I think I've ever had. It spoke to me. Caroline, did you have a moment with that? Because you also have kids that won't listen. <laughs> yeah, I think I spend all my time being like, for the love of God. <laughs> yes. Yeah, for sure. Because we feel like we've all lived it before, right? And this is a scenario, though, like, I mean, he's unique in that Cranston is, you know, playing a judge here. And so he has yeah. seen the justice system and what happens. That's very unique to his profession. So, yeah, I think it's extra like bang your head against the wall. Like, please, I've seen how this stuff goes down. As Hunter, do you feel like that that was well conveyed, I guess, from Brian to you, I guess, that like, I've done this before. Did you guys have that type of mentor type of relationship? Like, watch me, listen to me, look at me, Hunter. Oh, outside of like in our characters, I learned so much from him and took every opportunity to ask questions. And even on our, my last audition, I got to meet him and we had a few minutes. We got to talk before we went into the room and did the reading and I literally was like, and what about this line? How would you do this? And anytime I had questions, I would go to Brian and we had some tricky scenes that we'd rehearse outside of set, but he's the best. And I learned so much from him. But as far as all of, you know, the listen to me or I can't protect you, you have to do what I say. I mean, I think that's my favorite parts of this show were when Adam and Michael kind of butt heads because, you know, Michael's like a, judge he's very pragmatic and he's got his eyes on the end goal and what they have to do and he knows step by step what they should be doing and adam is you know much more emotional and we've already talked about you know he's suffering from ptsd and he feels so much guilt that as it spins more out of control he just doesn't know what to do and i think michael can feel how volatile he is and it causes such friction between them. Yeah. And this episode tonight, I mean, it seems like Adam's ready to break like at any moment, at every time yeah. that, you know, there's the, there's the scenes, especially right up in his face. And you can see like he's processing everything behind his eyes there. And it, I mean, it's amazing. You do a fantastic job with it. Mm. Well, thank you. We're actually probably talking about this in our episode coverage from tonight, but there's a shift in Adam where I think episode one, you, your character seems to be panic and shock. And this episode, mm -hmm. the shock seems to kind of give way to almost anger. When he finds out Kofi has been arrested for the crime, he tells Michael in, in almost like an angry way, like, yeah. are, are you happy now? Uh, yeah. And then at the final scene where he's standing in a court, well, you know, almost like he's being arraigned. It, the whole thing you did. I mean, it, you did a great job. I, I don't, I don't want to like blow smoke <laughs> up your ass, but it's a really convincing without a lot of dialogue. I, I think your just body language conveys all of these emotions and, and struggles that he's having. Well, I really appreciate it. But, you know, again, it's like I had everything there to help me, you know, Brian and Peter's writing and Ed directing. But yeah, I, I think there is a lot of anger there. And it's kind of like the theme of the whole show is, you know, how far would you go or should you go to save someone you love? At first, it's just one lie. And then it just kind of spir keeps spiraling control. And in episode two, once Kofi gets brought into it, it becomes way more complicated. And now he basically feels like he's dooming another 17-year-old, just like he did Rocco in the first episode. But 
now his dad is wrapped up into this and he can't give up the first lie without also giving up everything his dad has done that's been illegal. So it's kind of like once you start lying and you have to keep building them up, it's like you can't come clean or everything you've done will have been for nothing, you know? Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. And I think we're seeing both and you're seeing it play out with Adam, but we're also seeing it play out with Michael. I mean, especially in tonight's episode, he does a really smart thing with, you know, today is yesterday, which is great. But then mm-hmm. once Nancy gets brought in and he starts to he has to kind of improvise a lot of answers that may not hold up later on. So even him, who is so calculating because he has seen it and he knows what to do, even for him, you could see he's struggling to kind of keep the lies going in a convincing way that's going to hold up. We're only in episode two. There's 10 episodes in the season. Like Caroline right. said, Adam's looking like already like he's going to break. What, <laughs> How's what, he going to make it? Eight well, more yeah. episodes? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not a sprint. It's a, it's a marathon. So what is his state of mind? Or, you're in the best position to know. Does he need to uh, confess to free his guilt? It, again, without being spoiler, just kind of your, the state of mind, the way you see Adam here. What is it? Is it that he feels so guilty because of what he's done or just because this isn't right? Kind of like for people listening who maybe are, want like a more specific feeling on what's in his brain right now. What do you think Adam is feeling right now? For me, I kind of had always said that, you know, he's just torturing himself with guilt. And, uh, you know, I talked to the psychiatrist and I, I read this book called The Body Keeps the Score. And there's this thing where people are suffering from PTSD, which is like the compulsion to repeat. And it's almost like to feel anything, you have to keep putting yourself back in that horrible situation. He is just spiraling. And then on top of it all, the way that his dad is trying to handle it, and it's a smart way to handle it. And Brian plays it beautifully, but he's basically telling him to shut up and never bring it up again. And Adam is just too vulnerable and too emotional to do that. And so, yeah, he needs to confess, which he can't do. And he needs to talk about it to somebody and he can't do that. And so he is like a ticking time bomb. I love the visuals of how they were actually shooting the scene, especially when you were going to go throw the phone into the river and they showed the off ramp and it was like spiraling downward. I was like, mm. yes, like that was so amazing. Oh, symbolism. And like, yeah. Like, I, but I could like feel going down, down, down with you. Like this is just getting worse and worse. The choices that are being made. So I thought that that was brilliant. And I don't know. Does anyone ever get freed from a guilt of, of killing someone like this? I don't know. Do you think that, that Adam, just even being able to confess, does that really do it? Or is that just something you carry with you forever? From all the people you've killed, if you can. Yeah, I was, like, <laughs> I was like, I don't well, just I, in I your don't know own why ex- do you think I would know that. <laughs> in your own opinion. Probably not. But again, it's just all these irrational emotions that he's having. He just can't help it. And he's 17 and he doesn't know what's going to help, but he's trying to figure out something. But yeah, there's probably nothing that he could do to actually make himself feel better and definitely nothing he could do to get justice for what he did. Yeah, I mean, things like standing in the courtroom like a specter in the balcony and then going down into like in front of the judge where like Kofi had just been standing. I mean, these are mm-hmm. all like they all feels like self-flagellation almost that you're almost trying to cleanse yourself by putting yourself in the position of 
the guilty party. I mean, you know, or the one being held accountable for it. I'm a little nervous with Nancy Costello gets his hand or gets her hands on on Adam because she's oh, intense. She's she, intense. Isn't Amy Landecker just the best? She, I mean, I, I thought I, I was ready to confess stuff just watching her kind of question Michael about all. And, know. you know, I think obviously if not for their friendship, he could not have seen more shifty in every interaction that they had. He was like, yeah, I, I drive the car, but then maybe Adam drives it. Maybe no one drives it. I don't know. I, I don't you know. know. It drives itself. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we leave the keys everywhere. We leave them on the floor. We leave them, we leave them everywhere. Stop asking me questions, Nancy. I mean, it was really, it was, but she's got like these like bore into you eyes and this whole like detective attitude i was ready to confess things yeah i I don't want to spoil anything but she definitely is around and a force to be reckoned with and a huge fucking problem for brian and i in this season (laughs) (laughs) i mean that's that's probably the biggest compliment that we can give her you know she's gonna be a big fucking problem yeah that's what you want if you're a a cop in a tv show you want to be a big fucking problem to people That's it. I, I want to go back and talk a little bit about you as an actor, because you've mentioned twice now that Peter has scripted everything out. It was all there for you on the page. But yeah. process wise, when you're getting into a character like this, especially if someone's so different than you, you've never run anyone over as a, on a motorcycle, as far as we know. Um, <laughs> how much of like a backstory do you dig into? Do you and Peter sit there and talk about it? Do you really have to do you need that to get in the character or you just show up and you read the words and and you're there? Because you know, we've interviewed people who kind of have both. So I was curious about your process. Yeah, I don't I do not do like the crazy, crazy backstory stuff, but just enough to fill out the character and just to know everything that you're talking about, to have an opinion about everything. And there was a lot to build out there with mom and the relationship with Brian, the relationship with Franny, just anything that I could latch on to that I could actually go and learn how to do, you know, with the asthma and... Even photography, you know, I, I learned how to shoot on film and develop in a dark room. To me, that was the most enlightening thing was spending all that time alone in a dark room. Like, I don't know, that just gave me such an insight into who Adam is. I thought, was that a, is that the birth of a new hobby for you? Is that something you think you're going to continue doing now that you have that skill like outside of the show? Everything's so fucking expensive in LA that <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I'm going to pay to use dark room, but you know, I, I loved it. And I, now it's I have very, my like, meditative you know, to be in there is, like that, mm-hmm. which like Adam needs some meditation. <laughs> he uh, needs some yoga. In his yeah, life. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, if anyone has just... ever needed yoga, it is Adam for sure. <laughs> oh, you guys are going to love episode three when we do the yoga scene. All right. In the awesome. intersection where the murder happens. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be, it's, it's gonna be like super zen. rolling out his mat. Yeah. Oh, um, oh my God. Over all that broken glass and left behind yeah. debris. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and he's, like, he's cleaning right up the him. glass and the, the caution tape. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, did, I, did I answer your question? I I think you did. I think you did. I want to follow up a little bit on Mm -hmm. that process, though, because, I mean, you had a little bit of a nude scene there. And, um, you know, I don't know. Not every actor is comfortable with that. How did you feel about that? Was it your first scene where you had to show some some back butt action there or what? It was the first scene I had to show some back butt action. Back butt, yeah, not front butt. Uh, We don't say full (laughs) frontal there. It's just some back butt action. Yeah. You know, what I always said was all my favorite shows have nudity in them. <laughs> so Hell kinda, yeah, Hunter. Hell yeah. yeah. I kind of <laughs> always, like, and HBO or Showtime, like, you kind of just know what you're getting into. 
So I kind of knew it was going to be a part of it. And, you know, it was, again, in the script. So I knew from that point, too. But it wasn't a big deal to me. I, I think, again, probably because I was surrounded by great people. I thought Ed, our director, made me feel safe. Sophia was a little more experienced just as an actor in general and with those kind of scenes. And so she was wonderful. And um, we also had an intimacy coordinator because after the Me Too movement, now that a lot of networks, I think hopefully all, if not all, have adopted having one anytime there's any kind of scene like that. I actually think, yeah, I think it was in SAG's last contract renegotiation that they have to have it on set. Yeah, it's great. It just takes out all the awkwardness and you choreograph it and you just have someone between you and the director because, you know, like actors are just so like, yes, I'll do anything you want me to do. (laughs) So it's just great. Uh, And, you know, I felt totally comfortable and now I've gotten some weird DMs about it. So I bet. Cool. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I'm sorry about my grandma. She keeps writing you. She's like, you got such a quiet, nice, tushy hunter. Yeah, and she's she won't weirdo. leave me alone. Yeah, she's, she's we, the we, one that brought it back, back butt to me, so sorry. Yeah. Back back butt action. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I want you to call it BBA from, from the rest of the time. You'd be like, I got a little BBA in this next scene. <laughs> it is the last time you see my butt in the show, so now Ooh. I can tell my family to relax. Yeah. And we're all good. There are more classic Cranstons coming up, I'm sure, but no more butt action. So So many CCs. Uh, What ways would you say you're most like Adam? You, Hunter, are most like Adam. You know, this is the opposite of your question. I I tend to overthink things where I think Adam is, like, very emotional and reacts really fast off of his emotions. But I felt like I had a really good way into his head at the beginning because, you know, we meet him on the first anniversary of his mom's death. And while we were shooting, we just passed the two year mark of when I lost my dad. So I just felt like I knew where he was emotionally and what that does to a young person. So that's probably the biggest similarity going into it. Uh, Just going back to one thing you said also, and I think it relates to that is uh, about the process in the show you know, you and Michael or my Adam and Michael are both starting to show like literally kind of in media res, right? Cause it is the anniversary and we see you, it's not the start of a new story. You guys are in the middle of this thing. You're in the middle of celebrating the anniversary of the mother and wife's death. So yeah. it, it's an interesting thing to kind of be thrust into the middle of that. And I think, I think the show did a good job with the viewers kind of bringing us into that right away with, well, again, with very little dialogue, I think everyone understood Oh, he's he's setting up a memorial in front of Yaya's food store for his mom. You know, Michael, we see jogging, leaning up against the tombstone in the cemetery. So I think the show did a good job kind of thrusting us right into this world. And even layering in, like, it's really clear that you guys watch Shawshank together. That's like one of your things. Like they layer it in like you guys have habits and rituals and traditions that you guys do. Yeah, Adam and Michael are such men in that way that it's clearly haven't like dealt with this death and don't talk about it a lot but have their little rituals, like watching Shawshank, and he says he's going to make Adam's favorite meal. But yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I thought the show did a good job of thrusting you right into the middle of these people's lives. So talk to me a little bit. Our listeners are always wanting to know more about time on the set. And, uh, you know, were there people who were jokesters? Were there people who were, like, super serious and just stayed in their trailers? Um, so do you have any favorite memories or any parts that were that you took away from working with all of these awesome actors, the cast and crew? 
any like hot gossip about people it doesn't have to be goss necessarily <laughs> but just fun memories something that you'll take away and be like oh my gosh i completely remember that that particular day or that that thing that happened doesn't have to be embarrassing to anyone or anything but just you know something that really stuck with you I remember when one of the people on the crew came up to me and were like, oh, this is, the, this is like the best show that I've worked on in a while. And um, <laughs> I was like, weirdly and bragging. Anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, he was like, but, you know, there's definitely the fun days and the serious days between the two families. And I was like, oh, yeah. And I was like, wait, what do you mean? Like, everything is pretty serious on this show. And he said the Desiados were the lighter days because Brian is such a dad in like the way that makes dad jokes, but also really <laughs> immature in the best way. And is always joking around that we had so much fun on set and it actually made it really fucking hard to keep up with him. One, cause he's just amazing, but two, he'll joke with you and like be cracking jokes, like up until they call action. Like there's no time where he goes away and like, you know, gets the emotion coming up and then they call action and he's just, immediately in tears or enraged or whatever he needs to be. So that always stuck with me. And then I think, you know, Michael Stuhlbarg kind of comes at it in another way. He's the loveliest man ever and very serious. And he was kind of like our dramaturg. Like if you needed to go to anybody to find out anything about the show, you could go to Michael and he literally had his binder with everything written on it. And he was the first person to kind of point out to me like that there is no real clear bad guy in this show. Because after our first table read, I went up to him and, you know, I was kind of nervous to talk to him because I was a fan of his. And I was like, oh, Michael, that was amazing. You're so terrifying. And he goes, oh, thank you so much. So are you. (laughs) And then walked away. And I was like, wait, oh my God. And that was like a real (laughs) light bulb moment for me. And he just said it was like, like a surgeon it was like a really quiet burn, right? <laughs> yeah. like, it was like you as well. Yeah, oh, like, geez. Yeah. Like, like three hours later, you sit up in bed. That motherfucker. Wait, I'm, I'm not the bad guy here. <laughs> I was like, wow, well, yeah, I guess from his point of view, you know, Adam's the villain. Yeah. Why don't we talk to that songbird about, uh, from tonight's Ooh. episode about who the villain is? Cause I think, I think the, vi- I think that little songbird in the cage is going to have a feeling that Jimmy is the yeah. bad guy. He <laughs> fucking bashes that thing to, to I all the hell. I love that scene. Oh my God. It's intense. It's intense. But you know, <laughs> why, why have that scene in there to show that this is not just a grieving father? This is a grieving father who has a penchant for violence. So I thought it was a great little addition to have. Yeah, and he has the means and opportunity to take action on all those violent thoughts. Yeah, I, I, it's interesting because obviously he's we we are introduced to him as a crime boss in the show, but then yeah. you see Michael tonight, and there's a little bit of Walter White in Michael's eyes. And when uh, the woman uh, Kofi's mother pleads for him to help and says he's a good man, he kind of explodes on her in the hallway. You yeah. know, he, which is the first real outward expression of anger he's had. You can see like this is also not a man that you want to test for too too long you know there's a lot of simmering anger just below the surface with everyone here you combine that with the hot streets of new orleans and you know you're it's almost (laughs) like a powder cake so before we wrap up and you've been so good you've given us so much time here but before we wrap up i have to ask you uh are you worried that any future roommates may be concerned with your inability to use a washing machine correctly Because I, I, that was one of the most cringiest things from the first episode. All that fucking water. What did you do? Oh, my God, man. Oh, my God. That was so crazy that 
when I stepped into it and had been flooded and <laughs> they had like built the laundry room because that's that's on a stage and they had built it lower than the rest of the set so they could like flood the whole room and they really fucking went for it but also like ed and i had so much fun on set like because he was like you're 17 there's you there's no way you're doing your own laundry there's no way you know how to do this he was like so we like we had so much fun with like how much detergent adam pours in there i don't know if that shot even made it in but (laughs) there was like a really long take of me just glugging detergent in there and like you know (laughs) pressing the buttons it's so frustrating when you watch it but I don't know. I just thought that was so funny and so specific and I love it. And it's just a nice little (laughs) addition to Adam fucking everything up. I mean, it's it's a real (laughs) cautionary tale. Like don't don't do wash. If you don't know how to use the machine, don't do wash. If you're in really stressed, you know, conditions, because you're going to cause problems. You just mash your palm against the whole machine. Like, (laughs) (laughs) well, even when we were talking about it in the first episode, Mike, I think you were getting so flustered and you were like, it's the clothes cleaning machine. It's like, it was like the washing machine. Yeah. I said, (laughs) said, said, yeah, listen to the episode. I I say, I said, and he can't even use, you know, the, the, the clothes cleaning machine. And I was like, do you mean the washing machine? Yes, yes, I did. <laughs> I was laughing. It was, like, it was like he was feeling your frustration and your like panic. Was like, it was really, it got I into the podcast. I, 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 my pulse is literally qu- quickened right now just reliving that moment. I don't know why. It, just because I think, because again, I have a son. He's, he's about to become a teenager and I worry about him using the washing machine and he's going Mashing to his palm. He's going to destroy the apartment. I'm going to get a note from the landlord saying he's yeah, the entire building. You, you gotta know? teach them how to do laundry. You gotta tell them not to stop for gas after you accidentally murder somebody. Murder. And <laughs> always pick up your inhaler. Listen, I'm from New York. We don't wave to people. We certainly don't wave to people honking at us at gas I station tried to lines. Explain okay, that wait, though. no, I heard uh, Caroline. I heard your defense of this in the first episode, and thank you. I grew up in Arkansas, and oh, okay. you well. <laughs> definitely wave you to wave. people. And you wave. Adam's like, "Sorry, I'm sorry. I'm such a." <laughs> fucking idiot and i'm on the wrong yes. side of the gas pump right here um so funny, so funny. <laughs> but those new yorkers they do not they do not wait there's no I mean, that, that's, i make way too much eye contact to up there <laughs> yeah wait yeah. adam just he doesn't drop his southern charm just because he's mm-hmm. got blood all over him no, that'd be rude <laughs> He's not going to murder someone and be rude. Come on no. now. No, no, no. Then we then we wouldn't care if he got caught. A step too far. Exactly. A step too far. <laughs> yeah. I was rooting for him until he was really nasty to the honking guy didn't... at the gas station. Yeah. yeah, he didn't even wave at that guy. <laughs> oh, my so God. Funny. So many. Not a criminal mastermind, but I think that makes him all the more endearing. So what I always say is I hope people can love Adam for his good intentions, but his actions and inactions make that really hard to do as the mom of two 18 year olds and a 17 year old currently let me just tell you you're as maddening as a real life (laughs) 17 18 year old they do all the same bullshit all the time and it's all over the place it'll be like wow you like did all this stuff and then why did you leave this under the couch like it's just a wide spectrum of choices and decision making so you're you're playing it spot on great (laughs) 
And we haven't even talked about Django hiding things under chairs and couches. Oh, Django! That's, Django! That is a bloody towel. <laughs> if, if, if there was ever a Chekhov's gun, there is a bloody towel mm. Chekhov's gun waiting underneath a chair. So, But we have to wait for another episode. This yeah, time, no out, comment. So. Yes. Uh, Hunter, you have been uh, so fantastic. Thanks for coming on and chatting with us. Um, uh, where can people follow you if they want to follow you on social media? What's like the best place to check you out? Yeah, just Instagram, really. And I really clever handle. It's just at Hunter Duhan. All right. All right. That's yeah. good. We've That's... had some people who accidentally had it before they got yeah. into acting, and theirs was like me, 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 bunny, foo, foo. You're like, oh, no. <laughs> right. And they like, like kept old, it. Uh, AOL screaming. Yeah. <laughs> you could hear yeah. the embarrassment as they said it on it air. So They're like, bad. it's Starlight Star Bright 316. <laughs> You're like, oh, no. I was drunk in college when I set it up. And... It's really funny. Yeah. Well, well, it's amazing. Yeah, I mean, you should really look at your agent if they're still letting you uh, like have <laughs> yeah, that as right, your social like, media handles. So MLP forever. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, Hunter, I hope we get to have you on again in, uh, sometime in the season. This has been fantastic. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, this was really fun. Thank you guys for watching the show and doing this podcast. This is awesome. And we're back. I just want to give a big thank you to Hunter. Uh, you know, we put that whole interview together pretty quickly. He was so game to talk with us, and uh, he was a genuine treat to talk to. So I just want to say thank you to him for coming on and chatting with us. Absolutely. He was wonderful. As we wrap up this week's episode, I, one thing that you and I always like to do in these shows that we cover that have some kind of whodunit action or some kind of question mark action is, what's a question you think you need answered? And what's a prediction you think you want to make for what's happening in the next week or two? My prediction is going to be that all of these eyewitnesses are going to eventually be woven together. I don't know if it's going to be done in a way that is so clever and um, creative that it is actually going to exonerate Adam or if the truth will actually be spilled out. But people like Nana Pistachio across the street, they showed her so many times, Mike, so many times. Right. She was doing the doing the the yard, which I was kind of laughing about because again, New Orleans is so freaking hot. The idea that this woman would be out there, no hat, no nothing, just like raking the leaves in the middle of the day, no. No, no. Well, it is October, so maybe it's a little more balmy. No, no, no. Oh it is God. hot. It is so hot. Year-round. Um, it is hot. It is hot. So, yeah, no, that would not be the time you'd be choosing to break some leaves. So um, I'm really wondering. She has just got her eyes so clearly on there. But also every single time that there's been some witness that's a, a, a plausible person, uh, you know, to unravel any part of the story, we've like zoomed in on them. So I want those people to start mattering, I guess. How about you? What's something that you're predicting? I'm going to predict that the web of people, I, I'm going to piggyback on yours. I'm going to take it in a little bit different direction. I think the web of people in now involved in this crime is ultimately going to come crashing down around Michael and, and presumably Adam. I mean, remember, in this episode, we also learn that about the waving at the gas station. Michael learns that information. Mm -hmm. So now he's got to try and track down this driver and, and the gas station because we saw that there was video at the gas station. So that's a new thing. There's the inhaler Michael learns that is now gone and missing. He's going to have to worry about that as far as he goes to clean up the crime. There's Charlie. There's whoever Charlie hired to steal the car who didn't steal the car in time. Nighttime. And he tells Michael that the car will be gone in a few hours. It, well, it's plain day. It's middle of day. It looks like when Kofi finally gets 
to that car. So that shit didn't happen on time. A lot of people know about this crime. A lot of people were witnesses to it in, in different parts of it happening. There's going to be some chink in the armor there. It's going to come crashing down around Michael. That's my prediction. What do you want to know? What's a big question mark that got raised in this episode or the first episode that you need an answer to? I think I'm ready to know more about the Baxter family. I don't want to be told they're vicious crime family. I don't want to just see the balcony, you know, bird bashing. I want to know more about their business. I want to know more about what they're doing and all the pies that they have their fingers in so that I can kind of gauge better why Michael is so afraid for Adam's life. I I want that to be filled out more with actually seeing it, not just being told it dangling that carrot a little bit is after Kofi pleads guilty and he's been stripped to his waist and identified as a member of the Desire or affiliated, they use the word affiliated, with Desire, out in the hallway, uh, Jimmy and his advisors start whispering urgently about how this wasn't a, this wasn't an accident this was a hit put out mm. on Rocco because of someone named Carlo fucking around and beating up someone in the desire gang they're now the Baxter family crime syndicate is now seeing uh, Rocco's death as a retaliation uh, of or, or some kind of declaration of war uh, of desire against the Baxter family. So who is Carlo and what is this going to mean? This is another thing Michael has now set in motion by having that car boosted by his actions to cover up Rocco's death and Adam's involvement in it. Now we have maybe a potential gang war, mafia gang war about to erupt in the streets of New Orleans. New Orleans has had enough shit. It doesn't need a gang war. <laughs> I do find it fascinating how many times someone has a little tiny bit of information and then they will say something that is just completely fabricated by their own brain. Like like Nancy sitting there saying, you know what? I think they're trying to send a message. They stole the car on Robin's anniversary of her death. It's clearly a message. Like those types of moments. And then, you know, you have the Baxter fans feeling the same way. Like, oh God, this is about Carlo, isn't it? I think it just like goes to say like, we all have skeletons in our closet. You know, you have Adam running down the stairs. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. The second that... You you know, the cop comes in the door. Everyone's got their own reasons for what's happening and they're only seeing it through one lens, which includes Michael, yes. which is important because I think he thinks he has this like amazing universal view on everything happening in the world. And in reality, he can only see it from one POV. He is missing a lot of information as we move forward, which is going to be his downfall. Just to bring back to the moment where Nancy starts talking about it can't be a coincidence that the car is stolen on the anniversary of the death. And and interesting, I mean, this kind of goes towards what I'd like to know. I want to know backstory. I want to know more about the circumstances of Robin's botched robbery where she's killed by a burglar or a robber in the in the commission of a crime. I want to know more about that. I want to know more about Lee. I want to know more about how we all got to where we are. So that's going to be my what do I want to know. But you can almost feel that Michael wants to facepalm himself so hard when she says that conspiracy theory and he's <laughs> straining to say for fuck's sakes nancy just let the car go <laughs> like like if that could no. be a, if that could be a sticker or something trending on twitter for fuck's sakes nancy let it go i think michael <laughs> would definitely be in favor of that being a trend you ever crack a window 
uh, and you and it kind of splinters out like a spider web. I sure. I feel like that's what's happening. I feel like this episode was the glass spider web crackling from an epicenter. All of the things Michael has done and all the well, starting with Adam and Rocco, but really Michael has really put into motion so many things that he cannot control, things that he doesn't even know is going on, like the possible gang war now. There are so many things set in motion. To say nothing of the fact of him yelling uh, losing his cool for the first oh, time God. to the grieving mother. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, holy shit. Like, everyone saw you, Michael. Everyone saw you screaming and hollering at this woman that you can't help her when when yeah. you were just helping her the day before. I mean, you you were just getting her off of a drug charge the day before. And now you're hollering, like, what's up with that guy? But, you know, if you, like, zoomed in on people's conversations, they'd look at each other and be like, well, it is the anniversary of his wife's death week, so he's probably upset about that. Like, everyone would just fill it in, right? Or, like, he's really tired. He usually runs this time of day. He's probably just upset about not running. Like, you know. Well, I mean, there's anniversary of his wife's death, and then, and he uses his line on Lee. It well, it was my wife's car that was used in the commission of the crime. I mean, yes. those two things together actually are pretty compelling. Uh, this is all happening on the wife's death. And well, why is he even here? Oh, because his wife's car was involved in the commission of the thing. What a what a what a double blow to him if they only knew. He could I mean, make up. And so you could do anything. You could cry out in the audience. You could like fall out. You know, when you're walking to the bathroom, you could do like a lot of things. People would be like, oh, my God, I know exactly what's wrong right now. No, no, you don't, y'all. You don't. I'm totally in at this point. I want to see what happens to Kofi. My heart is already kind of breaking for him because he just seems so young. And he looks terrified at the idea that he has to go to like big boy prison now. And he he does what he does to protect his family. But, you know, I'm worried about Adam breaking. There's there's a lot of concern here. I have a lot of I have a concern about a lot of people in the show right now. So well, and, and the helplessness of everyone feels so palpable. The helplessness of Adam, of Kofi. I mean, they both have to do what other people are telling them to do for the good of their family. Because it won't just be Adam that's killed. You know, his dad is likely to be killed as well. It, it, Kofi his girlfriend just, teacher. Yeah, you know? everybody, everyone's in risk, you know, and so it's like one of those situations where, you know, how far do you take it in order to hopefully just hopefully save those around you? How far do you take it? I mean, that's the thesis of the show. That's everyone's thesis now at the show is how far do you take it to avenge exactly. someone to, to protect someone? Well, with that, I think that's the end of another episode of Tales from Yaya's. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Thank you for listening to Tales from Yaya's, the Your Honor podcast. Please remember to go to Apple Podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe at Apple or wherever you listen to podcasts. It's available everywhere. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.